Have you ever been in the type of storm where you thought you might die? Anybody? The storm was so bad that, that you weren't sure if you were going to make it or not, or if you were going to live. Anybody been in a storm like that? Right. I, I may have been in kind of one where I was there. Uh, and some of you know this uh, about us, but we've had many new people kind of come in and so forth. And um, So I want to show you this. Uh, the storm that I have been in pales in comparison to two of the storms that my wife has been in. Uh, my wife, as many of you knew, grew up in Alabama, and she has survived two of the biggest storms ever to hit the state of Alabama in the past hundred years. Uh, she has survived an F5 tornado and a tornado that was teetering on uh, F high F4, F5. Let me show you just some, kind of some pictures to show you a little bit. This is when she was, um, I don't know how old she was, 10. Um, this is her church, a gym here, and she is standing actually outside. She's standing on the gym floor, but in 1998, uh, the largest tornado ever to hit the state of Alabama went directly over the church uh, that she attended in the gym that they were in. There's, this is their fellowship building, which actually sits up on the hill uh, above their church, and she was up there on a Wednesday night um, during their church meeting when they heard the storm was coming, so her her dad and those who were there with the kids rushed them into the restroom. And, and what you see there is the restroom door that they were in as the storm raged through. And everything in front of her would have been a full-size gym and a metal building. And you can see uh, how that metal building was just kind of peeled back there by the tornado. And all of them survived. Uh, her senior year at the University of Alabama, some of you may have remembered this being on the news when... Uh, an F4, um, almost an F5 tornado went right through Tuscaloosa. I was asleep on my bed, or uh, not my bed, but my couch, I think taking a nap. I can't remember if it was Saturday or, or when exactly it was. And my roommate came running downstairs and said, hey, a tornado's going through Tuscaloosa. And I remember turning on the TV and the, the, the meteorologist said a, a tornado has just hit the corner of McFarland and 15th. Well, if McFarland and 15th was here, my wife's neighborhood is here. It is one street over. And so you can imagine the panic, and I began to call and so forth, and thankfully I got through. Her parents were unable to get through because everybody was calling to, to that region, and um, I was thankful to hear that my fiancé was alive. And what is, this is a picture of my hike in the next day to basically go find her and the house. This is one street over from the neighborhood that my wife was in at the time. Uh, go to the next picture there. Um, this is my wife's street as you look down it. Did I put her house in there, um, Don? Right there. Her house somehow still had its roof. Uh, her and her roommates kind of huddled in a hallway, and they were on their hands and knees, and they were praying and kind of screaming out to God. And thankfully, obviously, God spared them and, and their house. Uh, I, I'm not sure personally if the moral of this story is to be with my wife when storms move through or, or to get as far away from her as possible. <laughs> when we moved here uh, uh, from Birmingham, we had a strong storm that first summer and I came home from a softball game. We got caught in the storm in the softball game and she wasn't there. I walk into my basement and my wife is down there with a bicycle helmet on and she's got my son as a bicycle helmet on and they are under the desk. Um, and I had to remind her, yeah, I know there's a tornado warning, but you live in Ohio now. Um, it's probably not real. Uh, so, <laughs> right. 
but have you ever been in a storm like that? And I'm not necessarily just talking about a natural disaster, but, but a storm where you thought you might die. For some of us, right, this would be no problem uh, for you. What you've got going on in your life is much worse than any tornado, any hurricane, or anything like that. It can be an addiction, and addiction can, can feel like a storm in your life. Uh, what you're going through in your marriage can feel like a storm. In fact, it may even have a name, right? Hurricane Carl, I, I don't know. Uh, who, whoever it might be, right? Maybe you're single, right? And, and your singleness at this moment, it, it just feels like a storm. You're at odds with a friend. You're at odds with your parents. Or your parents are making decisions that you wish they wouldn't make, and it, it's, it's, it's troubling to you. Or your children are making decisions that you wish they wouldn't make, and it feels like a storm. Maybe you've lost your job or your finances are not where you hoped they would be at this point in your life, and you're trying to figure out if you're going to be able to retire or if you're going to be able to feed your family or, or feed yourself, right? That can feel like a storm. Uh, maybe you're ill. Maybe the doctor has told you, right, you have cancer or you're going to carry this illness for the rest of your life and maybe you're facing death. All of those can feel like storms, and we might ask the question, right, will I survive this storm? Well, today I want to talk to you about a storm. I want to talk to you about the storms in your life. If you were with us last week, you know we started a series on Jonah. If you weren't, don't worry, we're only the second week into it, and I'll summarize last week real quick. God told Jonah to rise. Hold on to that word. God told Jonah to rise, get up and go to Nineveh, and tell them that their evil ways are going to bring destruction about them unless they turn to the Lord, basically. Jonah, however, he rose up, and instead of going to Nineveh, which is over here, he decides to head to Tarshish, which is over here. And so we pick up right there in the story uh, where Jonah has disobeyed God, which when he was told to go to Nineveh, and now Jonah is heading to Tarshish. Last week we ended on verse 3. We're going to pick right back up at verse 3 as we are here together this morning. So verse 3, chapter 1 of Jonah. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. I didn't cover that last week. Go ahead and underline he found a ship going to Tarshish. And he paid a fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So what we find here is that Jonah, instead of wanting to go to Nineveh, he's going to go to Tarshish, and as he goes down to Joppa, he discovers that there's a ship that's prepared and ready to take him to Tarshish. And here's kind of the first thing I want you to know, and I want you to see. As he gets ready to get on this ship away from the thing that God wanted him to go towards, just because there is a prepared ship ready for you. This does not give you permission to disobey God, right? A, a, a ship is not permission to sin. Some of us, right, in our lives, we have clear and kind of direct commands from God, right? We have the scriptures in, in front of us. You know what God has called you to. You know what God wants for you and what his will is for your life, but you, you kind of begin to question it, and then all of a sudden, a, a ship appears in front of you, and you begin to say things like, Right? Well, it must be God's will for me to do this if I have this opportunity. J.D. Greer, in his sermon on, on Jonah, he points out something that's very true. And it's simply this, is that we have an enemy whose sole job is to ready the ship. We have an enemy whose sole job is to ready the ship. An opportunity to disobey God or an opportunity to sin, right, doesn't mean that it's okay. That's not God providing that opportunity for you. Right? If the scriptures 
clearly teach something, right, and call us to something, we should step towards that. And something that's really easy kind of to apply to this is, is, is probably adultery. We're very miserable in our marriage, right? Our, our spouse isn't making us happy. And, and of course, right, of course God doesn't want you to be miserable. And so all of a sudden, um, in your misery, at the workplace or at the gym or, or, I don't know, wherever you may go, this magical person kind of appears who is really friendly. And although your, your spouse continues to, to maybe not fulfill you, to not make you happy, whatever that may be, this person makes you feel like you should be on the cover of GQ. Right? Uh, but just consider for one moment, right, that, that, that something like that is actually the enemy laying a trap for you. Because the enemy's sole job is to ready the ship. And this is just, this is, this is just how he works. Right? Think about Jesus. Right? Uh, think about Jesus. So Jesus is baptized. Jesus gets ready to start his ministry here. And, and this is really applicable to like you young Christians or those who have just been called to Christ. But this is, this is, this is the battle throughout all of your life. Jesus is baptized. He's getting ready to set out on his, his call and his mission and his ministry. And what Jesus' basic message is is that the kingdom of God is at hand, that it's here. And so he's going to teach and preach the gospel. And he goes off, Jesus goes off to prepare for his mission and his ministry. And immediately as Jesus is preparing to, to, to teach about the kingdom of God, who shows up? Right? Satan shows up, and what he does is he begins to tempt Jesus. And, and, and Jesus is supposed to preach the kingdom of God, and, and yet Satan, he, he dangles the kingdom of the world in front of Jesus. I, and basically what he, what he says, he doesn't say it in this way, but it, it's implied, right? You can have the entire world, Jesus, without the cross if you just serve me. The enemy's sole job is to ready the ship for your disobedience, and a ready ship is not permission to sin. Here's kind of a truth under this truth here is that if you want to run from God, right? If you want to step away from your calling to follow, follow God, right? Here's the deal, right? There will always be a ship there. It, it will be provided for you at some point. What we're told in the scriptures, and I know many of you believe this is true, right? Is that for every temptation that comes our way, God provides a way out, well, as God is providing a way out, Satan is always providing a way on. God is trying to get you to step off. He's trying to get you to step on. And so the second thing that you need to know, though, as you contemplate, maybe you have your ship in mind right now, is what happens when you step on that ship? And this is the second point this morning, is that sin always has a storm attached to it. Sin has a storm attached to it. I'll pick up in verse 4 here. But the Lord, Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And he hurled cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and he had laid down, and he was fast asleep. So what we discover here is that Jonah gets on the ship, Right? And as he gets on the ship and they begin to sail away, that is not a coincidence that a storm moves in. Right? This doesn't happen by accident. What we're told is that the Lord, Lord actually hurled a great wind upon the sea. 
so what we need to know, right, is that your joy that is brought about your disobedience or your sin, right, it, it won't last forever. It, it, it's temporary. Right? You will feel the pain of your decision later. And, and here's the thing uh, about when we disobey or when we sin. It feels good at first, right? let's be honest, right? Nobody goes, I'm going to make this decision, and I'm going to disobey God, or, or I'm going to sin, right, because it makes me feel bad. I mean, some people do, but the average person doesn't. Right? You, you do it because it, it feels good, it feels right at the moment, and it brings momentary pleasure. And so when you sin, it's not usually typically like this, this, this sharp pain right away. It's not like getting shot, stabbed or shot or anything, but rather the pain typically comes gradually, it comes gradually. As you violate God's law, what will happen is that your sin basically will find you out, as it says in Numbers. In other words, you will, pro- you will eventually suffer for your sin. Start out with just a really easy one, right? Uh, one that we, we all, because we're Americans, right, we just struggle with this, right? Like gluttony. Right? If, if you continue to treat your body poorly, right, your, your body will rebel against itself. If you treat your friends poorly, you won't have a lot of them. Right? Or, or there'll be constant strain in between, between them. If you're selfish, society will not function the way that it's supposed to function. This is just how sin works. If you're self-righteous, Right? If you're, you're better than everyone, if you're a, a, you just think you're a good person, and by the way, this is how religious people run from God. This is how Christians run from God. They become self-righteous. Hey, I'm good. Everybody else is, is bad. Hey, we forget, right, that the Bible teaches that no one is righteous, not one, that we all need the grace of God, that we've all, we all need God's forgiveness. We need it now, and we need it later. And we can't earn our way to God. We can't be good enough to earn our way to God. No matter how many good deeds we do, we are not doing them to earn God's love. We are doing them out of God's love. And as long as we think that all of our good deeds, right, are, are piling up, like, you're, you're, you're kind of like on a scale here, and as long as your more good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, like, God is going to love you more. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work like that. And actually, what happens, right, if we become self-righteous, we become bitter towards those who aren't able to be as good as us in our eyes. And so what we begin to do is we begin to hate and dislike people who aren't like us or who don't have the world figured out like we've got it figured out. And you lose your capacity to love. You lose your capacity to offer grace to people. And so what does, what does God do here in the midst of the storm while he threatens to break the ship up. He threatens to break it up. So if you're a self-righteous person, what does that look like? God will probably set you up for failure. Why does he do that? He does it to get your attention. He does it to get your attention. Uh, If you're going through a storm right now, this is is just what what I want you to consider is that your storm that you are going through, whatever it might be, might be a divine interruption. Your storm might be a divine interruption. It might be God trying to get your attention. God, God may be trying to actually get your attention by breaking something up in your life that you love more than Him. 
Uh, and, and, and here's something that you should probably do, is that you should probably start paying attention to the tension in your life. Because God may be trying to save you from something. He may be trying to save you from destruction. He may be trying to save you from more bad choices. He may be trying to save you from self-righteousness, whatever it may be. So it's Halloween tomorrow? Two days? Three days? I don't know. I'm here in a couple days. So you've got to tell a story about Wicked Witch, right? A little fairy tale? So there's a story, there's a fairy tale of a witch, and she lives in a little cottage, and as travelers pass through, what she would do is she would invite them in and she would make sure that they had um, new clothes to wear, uh, food to eat, and the most comfortable bed that they had ever slept in for the night. Uh, the problem with the bed is that the bed was full of dark magic. And so as these travelers would come through and they slept on the bed, if they remained asleep in the bed before the sun came up, what would happen is they would turn to stone. And then she would place these travelers in her statuary where she kept all of her trophies and her statues and so forth, and they would be there for all of eternity. Well, a young lady who worked for the witch and who was under the spell of the witch, she began to develop uh, empathy for these travelers, and she was tired of seeing these travelers turn to stone. So as she saw a traveler approach, she went and made the traveler's bed, and in the bed, she piled up sticks and stones and thistles in this bed. And so she took the traveler to his room and she left him in his room, hopefully, hoping that they would keep him from sleeping. And so the traveler spent all night in this bed, tossing and turning and trying to get the sticks and stones and thistles out of his bed. And it was one of the worst nights sleep he had ever had. And he woke up that morning before the sun came up. And on his way out, he said this to the young lady. He said, how could you give a traveler such a bed full of sticks and stones? And as he walked out, she whispered, ah, the misery you know is nothing like the infinitely greater misery of a comfortable sleep would have brought you. Those sticks and stones were sticks and stones of love. You see, God uses sticks and stones sometimes to wake us up and change our lives. Uh, many of us believe that God is always going to ensure, right, even in our disobedience, that we live comfortable lives. But that is not true. What God wants for you most is not your comfort, but rather for a changed heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 says this. It says, I will give you a new heart. This is, this is what God plans to do through the Messiah. This is what God plans to do through Jesus Christ. It says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit that I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and, and I will give you a heart of flesh. You see, God is, is trying to mold our hearts so that they will become like his, so that our character will be like his and sometimes it takes a divine interruption to do that. Not only will God use a divine interruption uh, to wake you up or to protect you, though, God will use it to protect others, because here's the deal, is that your sin does affect other people. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't when, when people tell you, right, you, your choices are your choices and your choices alone, and it doesn't matter how it affects other people, right? It's just not true. 
Your sin affects other people. Look at the sailors. Look at the mariners here. They, they're, they're the innocent ones in this story right here. They are caught up in Jonah's decision, right, not to follow what the Lord had told him to do. So they are caught up in Jonah's disobedience. And, and what God hopes to do, right, through your divine interruption is, is actually to wake you up because God cares about other people. Yes, he loves you and he cares about you, but he also cares about the person sitting next to you right now. And he cares about your neighbor. We know that our decisions and our choices affect other people as well. Parents, you know that your choices affect your children. Children, you know that your choices affect your parents. You know that your choices at work affect your coworker, your company, and your community. All of these things affect other people. The problem with Jonah here is that he doesn't care, right? He's oblivious to this. Where's Jonah? He's at the bottom of the ship, right? He had gone down to the bottom of the inner part of the ship, and he's laying down, and what the scriptures say is that he's fast asleep. In other words, like, this is a deep sleep. He, he is completely apathetic about everything that is going on around him right now. He just doesn't care. Do you know anyone like Jonah? Are you Jonah? Are you fast asleep in the bottom of the ship and yet your decisions continue to destroy people's lives? If that's the case, I, I believe that you're not here by accident. That God has brought you here this morning to wake you up. That's why you're here. That's what the mariners are trying to do to Jonah. Get up! Now, the difficulty with a sermon like this is this. Is sometimes we think all of the storms, all of the bad things that are happening to our, in, in our lives are directly related to our decisions. Like the decision that I personally made. And that is true for some of your decisions, right? But not all of them. Some of the storms in your lives are not caused by your sin, but they're actually caused by the sin of others. Right? You, you may not be Jonah at this moment in time, or uh, the storm may not be caused by your decision, but rather the storm may be caused by somebody else's decision. The, the sailors here, right, they're the victims, Sometimes, uh, as parents, right, you know that your children are going to make decisions even though you did the best you could that you don't like. Right? And it's going to hurt you. Uh, or, or, or maybe just something happens to them and it hurts your heart. Uh, you can be involved at school and a group project and somebody else, they don't do their part of the project and so you suffer because of the low grade. Same thing can happen at your workplace. Right? And what we need to see here, and what you need to be comforted by, if this is you, right, if your spouses are making bad decisions, if your parents are making bad decisions, if your children are making bad decisions, right, it may not be your fault. You are not responsible for all the brokenness in your life. Right? We live in a broken world. We do. Genesis, Genesis one, two, and three teaches us this. That Adam and Eve sinned, and we inherit their brokenness. We inherit that from them. It wasn't my wife's fault that the tornado went o tornadoes went over her twice. At least I don't think it was. 
I know, maybe there's something she hasn't told me. Right? You, just ha- you, you have to try to figure that out. It's part of following Christ. Fourth and final point here, and, and this is just good news for all of us, is that no matter where your storm comes from or no matter what it's caused by, God works through storms. So the captain, he runs down to the bottom of the ship and he says to Jonah, What do you mean, you sleeper? Rise! Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, us a, give a thought to us that we may not perish. So what happens here is that Jonah is fast asleep in the bottom of the ship. God then sends the captain down. God has control of everything that's going on in the book of Jonah. God sends the captain down to Jonah. And what does the captain first say to Jonah? Arise. What is the first thing that God says to Jonah when the book of Jonah begins? Arise. Arise. And so what we see here is that Jonah has tried to flee from the presence of the Lord. He's, instead of going to Nineveh, he decides to go to Tarshish, and he gets on a ship, and he begins sailing away, and then he goes to the bottom of the ship. He keeps trying to get away from the presence of the Lord, yet then God sends the captain down using the very words of God to Jonah, and he tells him the same words that God told him to begin with, which is to arise. The point here is that God will not let you flee, right? You can try to get away from the presence of God, but he will not let you flee, right? God will not let Jonah go. This is what God is up to here. I remember my, my dad's few words of wisdom, right? He said, right, if a, if a coach, for instance, he said, if a coach stopped yelling at you or, or the team, it means that he's given up on you and the team. That's, that's kind of what he said, right? Come home, complain. About, well, he hasn't given up on you then. Some of us, right, if we are not seeing or hearing God correct us and God's word continually coming back to us, that's when we should be worried. Because it's really, it's really easy to get upset at God for the things that aren't going right in our life. But the truth is if that we are living in disobedience right, and this isn't happening, that's when we should be worried. So God is pursuing Jonah. And what is going on here is that God is trying to give Jonah another chance to get up and make it right. He's trying to show Jonah that God is going to be gracious because God is going to continue to come after him and that God needs Jonah to get up and to rely on him. This is what the sailors are trying to get Jonah to do, by the way. (laughs) Call out to your God. A comforting part about the storms in our lives that we're told throughout the scriptures and what we see to be true is that God is working, right, for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And this is true in your life. In the midst of the storm, God uses storms for good. Think about the scriptures. Think about Genesis. Think about Exodus. In Genesis, God calls Abraham to come and follow him. Well, Abraham is going to come and follow God, and God promises him a family. And Abraham spends years kind of just wondering aimlessly, wondering if he's ever going to have a son, if God is ever going to keep his promises. And we know that God does, and he starts an entire nation through Abraham. Joseph. Joseph seems to be kind of an arrogant young kid who certainly has a calling on his life and is talented, 
but he, he doesn't know to kind of uh, keep some things to himself until God works it out through the time. And, and so God, how does God humble Joseph? Sells him into slavery. He's falsely imprisoned. And Joseph, though, helps deliver God's people to safety and out of starvation. Well, what about Moses? Moses is called to lead God's people out of Egypt to the promised land. He spends years in exile, wondering if God's actually going to do that. He doesn't feel like he's going to be capable of doing that. And then he gets to people and he spends 40 years in the desert. But Moses and Joshua, they're going to get the people there. Uh, you see, the storm in your life, right, it, it might be God just trying to get you to bring about some change in your life. It might be God trying to enable you and equip you to change other people's lives. Things like faith, hope, love, patience, humility, right, self-control. Nothing really develops those things like a storm, right? Those, faith, hope, humility, all of those sorts of things, those are hard to develop when things are just always going good in our life. So here's the deal. Your storm is not God trying to destroy you. Right? Your storm is God trying to restore you. Your storm is not God trying to destroy you. Your storm is God trying to restore you. I want to end this morning by just thinking about the prodigal son here. There's some parallels between Jonah and the prodigal son. So if you've ever read the story of the prodigal son, uh, it's about two sons and a father. We are supposed to put ourselves in the place of one of the sons, and then God is the father. The youngest son comes to the father, and he says to his father, Father, I want my inheritance now. Now, uh, this was basically like telling your father that I wish you were dead and I would rather have your money, right? It's not that hard for us to imagine. And so the son goes to the father. The father gives the son his inheritance. And then what the son does is he takes his inheritance and he flees from his father's household. He flees from the presence of his father. And we know that he leaves his father's homeland because he eventually goes off and he's eating where pigs are and and Hebrew people, right, they don't eat bacon. Thank God for the new covenant. So he's wallowing around with the pigs, and he uh, eventually loses everything. He squanders everything. He's homeless, and his father is a fairly wealthy man. And so he's sitting there, homeless, wallowing around with the pigs, wondering what he's going to eat. He was given a, a, a fair fair amount of money where he should have been able to live off of for quite a while, right, if he would have used responsibly. And so as he's wallowing, right, in his poverty, he begins to think, well, my father has servants. My father has a large house. And the Bible basically says this. It says he came to his senses. And he decides to head back to his father, hoping that his father would take him back in and make him one of his hired servants. And this is... <laughs> kind of how this story gets close to ending here. And I just want to show you this verse in Luke 15, 20. And it says, He arose, the prodigal son, the son. It says, He arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion 
and he ran and embraced and kissed him. My final question for some of you this morning, or one of my final questions, is just simply this. Are you running from God? Are you running from God? Are, Are you afraid to turn back to him? Have you made a decision that you feel like you have to continue to make because you've made it once? And you feel like, right, God won't receive you back. And God won't welcome you back. What we see here in the prodigal son is that no matter what you've done, God is calling you to arise. And he will run to you. And he will have compassion for you. You see, Jonah is not the hero, really, of this story. Jonah is fleeing God. And the truth is, is that God won't have it. This is not what God wants for Jonah. This is not what God wants for you. God doesn't want you to be asleep at the bottom of the ship. God doesn't want you to walk away from him. Instead, he wants you to arise and call out to God. Now, here's the deal. What the mariners tried to do at first, right? If you notice in the story before trying to call out from God to God, what the mariners tried to do is they tried to just throw a bunch of stuff overboard like, and hope that lightening the ship, right, hope that their own self-effort right, would save the ship. What we learn is that God is in control of the storm and only God can stop the storm. Your own self-effort is not what God wants. What God wants is God wants you to call out to him. God wants you to come to him. The mariners figured that out. I hope all of you will. So, Christians, if you're in the midst of the storm, ask yourself, how is God trying to restore me? What is God doing? What is God teaching me? It may be really hard to figure that out. Sometimes we don't know that to years later. Right? But remember that God is, God is at work working all things out to the good to those who are called according to his purpose. Right? That's a promise that we can stand on. If you're here this morning and you've been running from God, arise. Make the decision to follow God today. He loves you. He will forgive you. He sees you through his lens of compassion and love and grace. All he's asking is that you arise, repent from your sins, and believe on the Lord Jesus for salvation. Let us pray. Father, this morning we come to you as people who encounter all sorts of storms in our lives. And they are very difficult to deal with, Father. We would rather they not come. We would certainly rather you keep us safe, but we recognize that you are in control and that you are good. We thank you for all the ways that you have developed our character and that you have taught us to be loving and kind through the different things that have 
come in our life and the different things that have happened to us. We pray that our storms, that they develop us and the people who are more loving, who are more gracious, who are more self-controlled, who are more gentle. We pray that you forgive us when maybe a storm has hardened our heart or made us self-righteous. Father, I pray for those who are here today who are running from God. I pray, Father, that at this moment that they would stop running from you. I pray that they would know that it's impossible to begin with. There's nowhere they can go to flee from your presence. And I believe that if there's somebody here this morning who is running from you, that you have made it evident this morning that you are chasing after them. And so, I pray that this morning that that person makes a decision to stop running and to turn to you. I pray that they know that their sins have been forgiven in Jesus Christ when they accept him as their Lord and Savior. I pray that they know that they can be free from sin, from Satan, and from death. That those will no longer grip them like it did before. We thank you for the testimony that Eric shared earlier as proof. We thank you for what you're going to continue to do through this worship service this morning as we are here and as we worship you. And we pray that we all are able to say it as well with our soul. I ask that you bless what we are about to give you as we take our tithes and offerings together. I pray that they are expressions of your goodness, of your grace, and of our love for you. As in Christ's name we pray. Amen.